0: The year is 1846, and it's a cold, bitter winter. An ill-fated group of pioneers are trapped, snowed into crude little cabins near a lake in the Sierra Nevada. The food is gone, the horses and oxen have been eaten. Spines shiver and stomachs growl. A party of 15 has gone out, seeking help, but there's no telling when or if they'll return. And so, the unthinkable occurs. That's right folks, we're talking about the Donner Party. (laughs) Happy New Year, and welcome to Fables Agreed Upon, a historical true crime podcast. I'm your host, Danny, And I'm your co-host, Quinn. Over the next few weeks, we'll be diving deep into the story of the Donner Party. It'll be like a fun little mini-series. Fun. Just
1: remember me, baby, when I'm in six feet of cold, cold ground. Just remember me, baby,
2: when I'm in six feet of
1: cold, cold ground. Always think of me, mama,
0: just say there's a good
1: man gone down.
0: I want to preface these episodes by saying that much has already been written about the Donner Party. Some of it has been horrendously sensationalized and stretched the truth. Some of it has been written by survivors kind of wanting to downplay the things that they had to do to survive that we might look unfavorably on today, like cannibalism. And some of it has been written by members of the press immediately after the fact, wanting to tell a good story and sell a paper. But somewhere in all of that is the truth, and that is what I hope to retell here by piecing together the various conflicting accounts. Also, Manifest Destiny and Colonization were obviously majorly messed up. We fucked up. But it happened, it's a part of history, and we can't just ignore it just because it was racist and stupid, so. So, first things first, I'm gonna throw a ton of names at you. I'm also gonna make a little guide for folks to follow along, and I'll post a link to it on Twitter because it's just a lot to hold into your head. But I don't have it made yet, so sorry, (laughs) Quentin. In April 1846, the Donner Party set out from Springfield, Illinois. At the time, the party consisted of 31 people, the Donner brothers, Jacob and George Donner, as well as their families, Jacob's wife Elizabeth and their seven children, George's wife Tamsin and their five children, a Donner family friend John Denton, and the Reed family, headed by James Reed with his wife Margaret, their four children, and Margaret's mother Sarah Keyes, who was bedbound but refused to be separated from her only daughter. The Donners also employed three teamsters, Noah James, Samuel Shoemaker, and John Baptiste Trudeau. And the Reeds brought along five workers, Bayless Williams, Bayliss's half-sister Eliza Williams, Milton Elliott, James Smith, and Walter Heron. Chicago businessman Charles T. Stanton also joined them. Also, spellings and pronunciation are just like super variable for a lot of folks. Like Jean-Baptiste Trudeau is also sometimes called John Baptiste and John Baptist, so I mean close enough. Most of the time it seems to be happening with the names that are like more European or foreign and they get kind of like bastardized and Americanized.
1: I was going to say they get Ellis Island.
0: Yeah, more or less. So they started off with a great deal of oxen and provisions, and the Reeds even had a special custom-made two-level wagon so that Margaret's elderly mother Sarah could ride in comfort. Virginia Reed Murphy, James and Margaret's adopted daughter, later wrote, Certainly no family ever started across the plains with more provisions or a better outfit for the journey, and yet we reached California almost destitute. Worth noting, Manifest Destiny was kind of exclusive to rich people and their employees. Like, It took a ton of money to do this in the first place, and this generally wasn't something that impoverished people were able to do, so it's safe to say none of them were super used to the kinds of hardship and meager rations that they were about to endure.
1: It's like that show where they put celebrities in the wild. Maybe I just dreamt that. Maybe that doesn't actually exist.
0: Like a celebrity edition of Naked and Afraid or something? So, at the start of the journey, none of them could have guessed it would go so poorly, and Virginia wrote, At last we were all in the wagons. The drivers cracked their whips, the oxen moved slowly forward, and the long journey had begun. We were full of hope, and did not dream of sorrow. Eliza P. Donner Hewton, daughter of George Donner, echoed these sentiments in her later writings. Like faded trains of other epochs whose privations, sufferings, and self-sacrifice- trance trains exist, then? I,
1: I think so? because um, like straight up I would not be in a little like rickety wagon. I'm getting on a train. Well,
0: first of all, they called them wagon trains, which is why she rides trains. Second of all, if they did have trains, they did not have that They're one that ran just for east to west and stuff, but not for people. Yeah, and they the opening of the like East to West rail line is like a major thing in history and it had not happened yet. I don't know for sure if they had trains yet. I'm imagining probably this is what? 18...
1: 1846. I'm gonna find out when trains happened. Okay. <laughs> On the 21st of February 1804, the world's first steam powered railway, railway journey took place... So yeah, we've
0: had trains since 1804. So we had trains, but we didn't we did not have that one that ran east to west. That was not done yet. Not important. The point is they didn't they didn't have the train that would have taken them where they needed to go. Yes. No. And even if they did, you can't take all your worldly possessions and everybody on a train, you know. I just wanted to know how she knew what a train was. They called them wagon trains. Okay, but still. Also, she she didn't write this in 1846. She wrote this Spoiler alert, Eliza Donner lived. (laughs) 1830. Okay, spoiler alert, Eliza Donner and Virginia Reed Murphy lived. Um, They wrote this much later on. But anyway, so she wrote, Like faded trains of other epochs who privations, sufferings, and self-sacrifices have added renown to the colonization movements and served as danger signals to later wayfarers, that party began its journey with a song of hope, and within the first milestone of the promised land, ended it with a prayer for help. On May 29th, 1846, Sarah Keyes, Margaret's mother and Virginia's grandmother, passed away. The Uncle Joe
1: in this story.
0: Who the hell is Uncle Joe? Uncle Joe is the useless
1: grandpa in Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory who's bedridden and doesn't do shit until he's like, Oh, we're going to a chocolate factory. I can suddenly move.
0: No, she was legitimately bedridden, and it's she knew she was gonna die soon. She refused to leave her only daughter. Her sons were actually still in Illinois, like, no, mom, stay with us. And she was like, no, 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 I'm not leaving my daughter. I'm not letting her leave without me. I think somewhere in there, she probably knew she wasn't gonna survive this journey. And frankly, considering what happens later, it's maybe better that she passed sooner. Let's all eat grandma. We are nowhere near the eating people stage yet. (laughs) But anyway, she passed away on May 29, 1846, near the Blue River in Kansas, and this was the first of many misfortunes that would befall them. Along the way, they joined a wagon train, and their numbers swelled. They were joined by several others, Patrick Green and his wife, Margaret, who also went by Peggy. Their seven children and a family friend, Patrick Dolan, joined the party, as did William McCutcheon, his wife, Amanda, and their one child, and William Eddy, his wife, Eleanor, and their two children. Lavinia Murphy, a widow from Tennessee, brought along her daughters, four of whom were unmarried and two of whom, Sarah and Harriet, brought their husbands and their one and two children respectively. Two men, Hardcoop and Wolfinger, joined them as well. And so Hardcoop and Wolfinger are just like their last names, we don't actually have their first names, I can't find a record of them anywhere, but we do know that Wolfinger also brought his wife, whose first name was Doris.
1: Good old Doris.
0: Finally, Lewis Kiesberg, a German man, brought his wife and two children, as well as three employees. Carl or Charles Berger, also sometimes known as Dutch Charlie, but records seem to go back and forth on what his actual legal name was, Joseph Reinhardt and Augustus Spitzer.
1: A Dutch Charlie sounds like some kind of, like, donut. A little. Or, like, a sandwich, or some kind of food.
0: I could see a sandwich. I don't think I could see a donut named that.
1: It would be, like, a chocolate donut with some, like, white cream on the inside. I'm making it now. That's a
0: Boston cream?
1: Uh, <laughs> no. No. <laughs>
0: Anyway, following the Oregon Trail, they arrived at Fort Bridger on July 28th. There they met Lansford Hastings. Hastings urged the party to take a new route, since dubbed the Hastings Cutoff, that would supposedly shave 300 miles off the journey by crossing the Wasatch Mountains, skirting around the Great Salt Lake, crossing 40 miles of desert to the Humboldt River in Nevada, before heading back to the main trail. Hastings had told them it would shave 300 miles off their trip, but it was actually 125 miles longer than the regular trail. Virginia later wrote that her father was so eager to reach California that he was quick to take advantage of any means to shorten the distance. They had been making bad time and needed to cross the Sierra Nevada before the snow would start to fall in November. So the wagon trail split on July 31st, where the paths diverged at Fort Bridger, with some of the company taking the old route, and the Donners, Breen's, Reed's, Murphy's, Charles Stanton, William McCutcheon, William Eddy, Lewis Kiesberg, and all of their families, and a few others taking the new route. There were 74 people, but they were later joined by another party, um, the Graves family, which we'll meet a little later, bringing their total to 87 in all 29 men, 15 women, and 43 children.
1: How many people are in this damn family? Like 30?
0: This is a lot of families.
1: No, it said another joined their party, another group joined their party, and they brought it from. 40,
0: oh, yeah, yeah. To
1: 87?
0: Well, so the the graves...
1: Like, I know I can't do math, but, like, what? How many damn people are in this family?
0: Well, it was the graves, and then there was also, like, employees and whatnot. Like, everybody had a couple of employees and family friends traveling with them. Okay. So, also, up to this point, Hiram O. Miller had been keeping a diary, mostly just dates and records of where they camped. But he actually went with the rest of the wagon train and left the diary with James Reed, who continued to write in it. But it was still fairly concise and bare bones. His last entry is actually on October fourth, but we'll get into that in a little that's bit. It's like sisterhood
1: of the traveling cans. These two men shared a diary.
0: I mean, it was just like a travel log, basically. Okay. It was just like on such and such date we camped at such and such place. On this date, Sarah Keys died. Like just a record. Oh, that's of- boring. But anyway, so he leaves the diary with James Reed, and then James Reed stops writing in on October 4th. So with that, we do have a record of basically everything that transpired until then. So it took them until August 6th to get through Echo Canyon, which should have taken them only a few days. And then it took them a month to reach the Great Salt Lake, when they were told it would only take about a week. At one point, they found a letter from Lansford Hastings, stuck in a bush, directing them to send a messenger, and he would, quote, return and pilot us through a route much shorter and better than the canyon. James Reed, William McCutcheon, and Charles T. Stanton rode on ahead to find Lansford Hastings, but Hastings actually refused to head back and guide them along the route that he had convinced them to take, and just drew them like a really bad map. So at the Great Salt Lake, they were joined by Franklin Graves, his wife and eight children, his son-in-law Jay Fosdick um, and his family, and a teamster, John Snyder. These
1: people really do just be like, I'm going to have six to eight children
0: have to understand that it was 1846, you would have eight children and five of them would die.
1: Well, none of these children seem to be dying yet.
0: He says as if it's a bad thing. I'm just saying,
1: they have like basically an entire preschool class per family. How friggin tiny was your preschool? I don't know, I didn't go to preschool. Anyway! The point is, these people had too many children, they need to find a hobby that's not creating more children.
0: Historically speaking, people had large families for the most part, up until the advent of effective birth control. I mean, I'm, what are you gonna do? Say no more sex? Yeah,
1: just don't do it. You're here, folks. Just don't do it. This is Faye an, ab- this is an ad for podcast. abstinence.
0: No, it's not. Please ignore him. Live your life. <laughs> be safe. Be consensual. Live your life. We're gonna have to do so much editing, and this goes up January first. It is December 27th, this goes up January 1st, please! On August 25th, Luke Halloran died of consumption. They made a coffin and found a nice spot to bury him. On August 27th, the party set about crossing the desert, which had been advertised as only 40 miles, but was really over 80 miles. They had been told it would take them 2 days, and they'd find water in the first 24 hours. But the desert was 5 days wide, and they went 48 hours before they found water. Virginia wrote that, "...it seemed as though the hand of death had been laid upon the country." At one point, the Reeds had to abandon their wagon, the Donners being some ways ahead of them and having taken the majority of their cattle in the hopes of finding water, and all of the Reeds walked for miles in the dark, quote, "...every step seeming to be the very last they could take." When they caught up, they found that all of the Reeds' cattle had run off, save for a single ox and cow, and a lot of other people's cattle had also run off, and the party lost a week trying to track them down. Along the way, some more wagons and goods were abandoned so that more oxen could carry less weight and hopefully speed things up. But they also worried they'd run out of food, so they sent Charles T. Stanton and William McCutcheon ahead to Sutter's Fort for provisions. On September 30th, they finally got back to the main trail, now months behind. Soon after, there was snow on the hilltops. Winter had come a month early. On October 5th, the second, or third if you count Sarah Keys, of their company died. John Snyder, a young man traveling with the Graves family, was, by Virginia and Eliza's accounts, frustrated with his oxen and started beating them on the head with the butt end of his whip. James Reed, supposedly knowing how precious the few remaining cattle were, tried to persuade him to stop. This supposedly enraged Snyder, who started whipping Reed repeatedly, until he was bleeding from a gash on his forehead. Reed's wife, Margaret, ran over to try to stop Snyder and got in the way, and Snyder brought the whip down on her, though this probably wasn't on purpose. Reed pulled a knife and stabbed Snyder immediately, supposedly to defend himself and his wife. John Snyder died pretty soon after that, and Reed regretted his actions pretty much instantly, and even offered up the boards from his own wagon to make a coffin. The party held a council. Lewis Kiesberg, in particular, was adamant about punishing Reed, supposedly because Kiesberg held a grudge against him? Earlier, Reed had threatened him in an effort to get Kiesberg to stop beating his wife. Heisberg, who, up till that point, had been beating his wife pretty often and openly, really wanted Reed gone.
1: So, Reed's my best friend.
0: I mean, Reed did just kill a guy. He killed a guy because,
1: one, he hit his wife, and two,
0: who beats on cows, asshole? Get stabbed! It is worth noting that this is according to Virginia Reed's account, who was his daughter. Well, adopted daughter. Um, And according to Eliza Donner's account, who, like, the Donners were on good terms with the Reeds. Like, before this all started. So by other accounts, it was maybe more of a malicious thing and less of a, you just hit my wife, what the fuck. It really just depends on whose account you're reading and whose account you trust. But either way, pretty much all accounts, aside from Kiesberg's own, insist that Kiesberg was probably beating his wife fairly regularly and didn't like Reed because they had had an altercation about it previously. So he supposedly wanted to have him actually hanged. Um, But the council instead voted to banish Reed, which was sort of a compromise. So Reed actually only agreed to go after the company promised to care for his wife and children, and he planned to ride on ahead and get help for everyone. Virginia recalls that there were a few days where he was just like a few days ahead of them, and he would leave behind letters here and there, or like scatter feathers from like whatever game he'd killed just so they knew he'd eaten, um, just so they would know he was okay. Soon after, the Kiesberg family actually started walking to lighten the load on the oxen pulling their wagon. Mr. Hardcoop, an elderly German man who was traveling with them, was forced to walk as well. He didn't come into camp with everyone else that night, and a man was sent out on horse to find him and bring him in. He had been left five miles from camp, so the horseman brought him into camp. The next morning, they were all walking again, and he begged William Eddy for a spot on another wagon, saying that Kiesberg had, quote, put him out to die. Eddie said he would let him ride in his own wagon if he could just make it a bit further till the road was a little easier on the oxen, but the road didn't get easier and Hardcoop once again fell behind. He was never found, and in fact, they didn't even look for him. Rude. They didn't have the time or the resources to double back for him. Like basically their options were risk the two horses that they had that could have brought him back on what had already proven to be a fairly dangerous road, or set out on foot for him and hold up the wagons for who knows how long. Don't get me wrong, it is definitely shitty to leave him, but all of the options available to them were kind of shitty, and there was no guarantee he'd even be alive when they found him.
1: I mean, to be fair, it sounds like Kiesberg is just a piece of shit.
0: So, most accounts make him look that way, yeah? We'll get to that later, like several episodes later. I think he's kind of a slimy dude. (laughs) But by most accounts, pretty much all of them felt really bad about it, but it was kind of like a we don't really have another option here, if we go back we're waiting how much longer and we're already running late and we don't want to get trapped in the snow, and there are no good options here. But so then, Mr. Wolfinger disappears. So he and Lewis Kiesberg had brought up the rear of the trail with their wagons, and when everyone camped that night, they still hadn't arrived. Their wives were in the camp, but the men had fallen behind with the wagons. So this time, people went out to look for them. They found Kiesberg quote, leisurely driving back toward camp. He told them that Wolfinger wasn't far behind, so everyone went back to the camp. By morning, Mr. Wolfinger still hadn't arrived and his wife Doris was frantic, so William Graves Jr. and two others went back to look for him. They found his wagon about 5 or 6 miles from camp, but he was nowhere to be seen. There were no signs of struggle and nothing appeared to be stolen, but they couldn't find the man anywhere. So they brought the wagon to camp and explained. For the most part, the party kind of assumed that, like, native men had just killed Wolfinger and ran off with his body, but some of them were suspicious of Kiesberg, because he had been the last one to see him, and Wolfinger supposedly had a lot of cash on him at the time of his disappearance. Kiesberg did it. Fuck that guy. I can neither confirm nor deny. At this point. Three days later, Joseph Reinhardt and Augustus Spitzer arrived in camp, having been missing, and Mrs. Wolfinger recognized the gun that they had as belonging to her presumably deceased husband. If you recall, Reinhardt and Spitzer were employed by Kiesberg. So they told everyone that they were in the wagon with Wolfinger. They said that native people had killed Wolfinger and burnt the wagon, but the wagon had been found intact. Not burnt. Then on October 19th, Charles T. Stanton returned with seven mules, all carrying provisions. William McCutcheon was sick and had to stay behind at Sutter's fort, but Charles T. Stanton had brought back two native people as guides, Louis and Salvador, and also brought news that James Reed was okay and had made it to California. The next day, October 20th, tragedy struck again. William Foster killed his brother-in-law, William Pike, in a shooting accident. William
1: killed William.
0: Yes. There are... A lot of Williams. There's William McCutcheon, William Foster, William Pike who is now deceased, uh, William Eddy who is like a big player later. There are many Williams, there are several Eleanors. there are a few Margarets. There's also a couple Charles. Yes. That's why everybody gets a last name with their first name every time. Because otherwise it's William this, William that. Then as snow began to fall, the Donner Party tried to cross the Sierra Nevada mountains. On October 25th, a native man shot at their cattle, killing 19 oxen before William Eddy killed him. Then, within three miles of the summit of the mountain, they realized that they couldn't get through the five-foot snowdrifts and headed back down. They sought shelter in a cabin at the foot of the mountain that they had passed on the way up, and set to work building more cabins on the shore of what later came to be known as Donner Lake. Virginia wrote, The misery endured those four months at Donner Lake, in our little dark cabins under the snow, would fill pages and make the coldest heart ache. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fables Agreed Upon, a historical true crime podcast. Please join us again on January 15th, when we'll discuss those tragic four months at Donner Lake. And if you liked this episode, you can find more on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or most anywhere you listen to podcasts, or on our website, which I'll link to in the show notes. Please leave us a rating if you feel so inclined. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our username is at FAUpod. That's F as in Felicity, A as in Andrew, and U as in you, our dear listeners. Our intro music for this episode was Six Cold Feet in the Ground, performed by Leroy Carr in Chicago, 1935, and taken from OpenMusicArchive.org. Our outro music, which you'll hear in a moment, taken from FirstWorldWar.com, is There's a Long, Long Trail of Winding, performed by John McCormick in 1917. We'll see you in a few weeks, listeners.
2: <laughs> Long trail of winding into the land. No.